Well, again, a Merry Christmas to one and all gathered here, uh, from Father Kevin, who had the Mass at St. Mary's this morning, and from all the staff, from the whole parish family, as we gather St. Mary's parish family too. This is a beautiful morning. It's a great day. And we gather as Christians with everybody around the world on the same day, no matter where we are, north, south, east, west, in uh, easy times, hard times, uh, cold weather, sunny weather, whatever weather, doesn't matter. The point is, around the world, everyone pauses today to acknowledge this amazing and remarkable fact that God has become man, that God has come down, the heavens have touched the earth, and we marvel at this amazing and astonishing truth. So, Merry Christmas, one and all, Christ is born, God has come, and he brings with him all the power of the heavens to make us like himself. It's an awesome thing to contemplate. This is worth repeating uh, over and over again, the, the central dogmatic truth of this feast day, that God becomes man, that God is one of us, that he is born. Because, and one could ask the question, I suppose, uh, we go through all this work at Christmas, right? So there is decorating, and there is gift shopping, and wrapping, and giving. There is baking. There is, as I often say, the Hallmark Channel ad nauseum at this point, right? So we have overloaded ourselves with layer upon layer of sentiment and custom and tradition and nostalgia, and it's, it's fine. It can be good and bad depending upon one's life circumstances time of the year. But it doesn't matter a whole lot, all those external things, if one doesn't know what they're resting on top of. They rest on top of the core of the joy of the day that is there no matter what's swirling around it. The joy, the kernel is God is born. God has come among us. And that's going to be a course and source of joy that wells up inside of us, no matter what's going on. Whether we're in a war place, like, say, the Ukraine, they celebrate Christmas today with the West, and also the East in another two weeks. That means we're going to be having joy when it's minus five degrees outside. We're going to have joy if the market is good, the market is bad, if we are sick, if we are healthy, if we've lost someone the last year, or if not. No matter what, you can't take away the core of it. God has come. And that's what gives rise to all the stuff we pile on top of it. And if one forgets the core, the stuff on top doesn't satisfy anymore. It just, it tastes good for a moment, and then we just want more, 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 and it becomes a sentimental kind of disaster, let's say, right? The core is what derives the whole thing. That's why we get it. What does that mean, though? I mean, to elaborate a smidge more on this point, right? So God becomes man, that's the core, okay. The uh, gospel writers... Each had different ways of getting at this beautiful, dogmatic truth. So in the case of Matthew, which would have been heard last evening in the afternoon, I guess would have been, he has this long family tree. That's how Matthew explains that God's one of us, that he's firmly enmeshed in the human condition and gives us a new start. There is um, Luke, the famous version, the one that we probably most associate with Christmas. And there is today from John. This is the gospel proper to the Mass called During the Day in Roman custom, like the, the High Mass would be like this one, in this long gospel, which says nothing about a manger or about Bethlehem at all. But John gets at the same idea, that God becomes man, just like Luke does and Matthew does. I would say we should pause on the fact that each gospel writer's own ways gets at the fact that when God becomes man, the God enmeshes himself deeply in our humanity, like into the grime and the cracks and the muck and the mess of the human condition. He enters into all of it. He's not afraid of any of it. 
And the gospel writers use details to underscore this point, to remind us what God has done. In the case of Luke's story, which we know pretty well probably, I don't need to read it because we kind of know it, it's another Christmas card that we get in the mail, right? The Lord comes to Bethlehem and there is no room for their family in the inn. We know that part of the story. So they are rejected. So what does God do when he comes to the earth, when God touches the earth? He goes to the places of the margins, the boundaries, and with the rejected people, because he himself was not wanted. So if anybody here was ever not wanted in life or finds oneself in an unpopular position or on the outs or in this place of loneliness or fragility, God is born there. He lives there. John's gospel picks it up too, a different way. What he says is that he comes into the world and his own people do not accept him. It's true from the very first moments of his life. It's true all through his public preaching. It's true to Good Friday. It's true even, frankly, after Easter Sunday. His own people don't want this great gift called God. You are gift givers, I suspect, right? We had gift opening last night and this morning. How does it go in a home, mom, dad, whoever, when all this time thought has been put into giving a gift and when someone opens up, they go, oh, I don't, I don't like that at all. It just sits poor, doesn't it, right? This is the tragedy and the scandal of Christmas from God's perspective and from John's also. God gives us this great gift of his son. And we say, I don't want that. Right? His own people reject him. But he's not afraid of that. So if you ever found yourself rejected, maligned, pushed away, and a sad, lonely spot, God is there with us in that space. So when God comes to the earth and becomes man, he lives in the hardest parts of our lives. He's been there. He's there now. Luke also uses the, uh, the swaddling clothes thing, right? We all know that part. So the kid's born, and he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. Luke likes this for many reasons. One being, it reminds him of the fact that at the end of Christ's life, he'll be wrapped in burial bonds and put in a tomb. It's a little prep for his death. The child comes as a sacrifice. So the same idea. He's going to be rejected, as John puts it very well in his text. So even death, God's going to go even to where death is, into a tomb. We're all going to die one day. There's no escaping it, right? Young, old, doesn't matter. It comes for us all. We can't control when. But when it does, as Christians, because of today, because of Christmas, we can say, while nobody likes death, we know it's not the final act. Because God lives in the tomb and he rises from it. So even in my death, which is approaching for us all, I know that because of Christmas, because he is Savior, because he's wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in burial bonds, we can escape death. So God comes even into that. God enters even into the mortality of his family. Profound, you know? God also lives and dwells among us. Luke says he's placed in a manger. It's a deliberately Eucharistic reference on his part. It's a feeding trough. The child is food. And God lives among us as a sacrifice on the altar. So if we think that God's far away, or God is gone or doesn't care, a Catholic says no. We know that in any Catholic church on this altar, as we gather in his name, he is present again. He lives in the tabernacle. He lives in our adoration chapel back there, and we can be near him. John does it too with his text. Rather than a feeding trough, John does this. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
This is subtle, but if one gets behind the language, John's borrowing from another story. The better way to translate it is he pitched his tent and moved among us and lived among us. It's the Exodus story. It's the Israelites on their journey into the wilderness to the promised land. And what does it say? They built a meeting tent and God moved in and he traveled with his people. He pitched his tent and dwelt among them. So when God's born, he pitches his tent and lives among his people. So in that story of the oldest, the manna that sustained them, this on this altar is what sustains us. But it also means that he travels through our thick and our thin, our hard and our easy, our ups and downs. He travels with his people. So when God comes to touch the earth, it's not just one time and he's gone. He says, I'm going to permanently live among you. How hard that must be for God on one level, right? To be among people who don't care, who don't pay attention, who don't want to deal with him, who push back his grace, who throw it back in his face, who reject his teachings, who ignore him on the altar, who don't come to Mass, who don't go to the sacraments. All this is poured into our laps, and oftentimes we say, I don't want it. But he says, I'll live among you anyway, and I won't abandon you, and I'll walk your meandering journey through this wilderness called life because I want to save you. I will not leave you alone. So in Luke and John, from different directions, they get at the same point. When God comes to the earth and touches the earth and lives in his family, he is here in the muck of our condition because he wants to bring us out of it at the end of our life, most especially. How does one react to this truth? So this is Christmas, okay? This is the, the power of the dog, right? We do different things as believers. And one, I mentioned this last time too, right? We can adore the Lord, when we realize what the altar has on it at every Mass and who is in our chapel, then one doesn't pass by a church ever again without thinking much about it. One wants to come. One wants to adore. One wants to pay him homage. One realizes one's not by oneself. One realizes one can't live without that. So one changes one's life accordingly to live by his presence so we can always be fed by him and helped by him. But also there is this too, and this is something that's interesting about the Christmas Masses in the Catholic tradition. If one looks at the Red Book that I pray out of the Missal and looks at all the instructions for today, there's an interesting line there that says that during the praying of the Creed, the recitation, the profession, the faith, the faithful during Mass are supposed to pause midway through the Creed, we're supposed to kneel. There's only one of the day of the year that we do that. It's back in March. Most folks aren't at Mass that day. The other day is Christmas. So in the Mass, when something like that is special, it tells us there's a lot of weight on this gesture. The church is trying to jar us from our usual routine, you know? Like we go to Mass on Sunday, great, and we stand for the creed and we mumble our way through it, Sunday. But not today. Church says, stop halfway through and kneel. Hit your knees. At what words? And became man. At the incarnation. The fact that God touches the ground. The heavens touch the earth, so what do we do? We touch the ground too. We kneel too. As God kneels before us and comes down low and becomes small, we become small too. To imitate his posture and to do so in adoration. It's awesome. When one knows what Christmas is, one responds even with one's body in our worship. I, um, I googled um, kneeling, okay? The first thing that comes up on Google when you type in kneeling these days is kneeling during the national anthem. 
That's what comes up, all right? This is what's on our minds as a culture. When I say Neil, the first thing Google thinks of is that, all right? Now ponder that for a second. Now, whether one likes that gesture or not, no matter how you want to slice the national anthem thing, it's all about drawing attention to what divides and what is sinful and what's broken. Either I'm going to protest it, and that's why I'm kneeling, or I'm so mad about it, that either way, it draws attention to what is wrong. For us, this is the whole opposite thing. We kneel not because of that, but because we are in awe and in wonder and in humility. And rather than being in people who fight and argue and, and grouse at each other and push back and try to overcome with domination and force, we say, no, we want to become small and gentle. We want to become unified as a body of believers around the truth that God has become one of us. So we kneel in wonder and in awe and in praise and adoration. And we kneel in imitation. If God can kneel, we can kneel. If he can become small, I become small. If I become small, then I change the world for the better because hopefully that attitude spreads around me so that the world is transformed by the humility of this day. Christmas is the day to touch the ground because God has touched the earth. And he stays and he lives and dwells among us people. It's an awesome thing to contemplate. So that's why we kneel today in the creed, because how do you not? When one knows what's happened, one honors it in our worship. So that's it, right? So all the cookie baking, all the present wrapping, all the Hallmark Channel binge watching, whatever else, right? You know, all of that is only necessary because God is born. That's the point. That's the point of all of it, right? And if all that other stuff went away, it wouldn't really matter one level. It's, it's nice, but the core of it is what matters. That's what drives the whole celebration. So what a gift that we're here this morning for the most important part of the day. The worship, the kneeling, the awe, the power, the wonder. God is born. He lives among us in the mess of his people to raise us to the glory of heaven. He becomes us. We can become him. Awesome, full of his power, full of his life. Merry Christmas.